everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics, and so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. everybody, Magnus here. Been a while since I've done one of these front tags, huh? Anyway, listening to music the other day, and, well, the other day, that makes it sound like listening to songs is an infrequent activity for me, but anyway, whatever. I was listening to songs once again the other day, and Maria Taylor's A Good Start came up in the rotation, and, you know, Sometimes songs remind you not so much of like a specific moment, you know, but more of a general period, you know, like a season in life rather than one particular day or one particular event or, or something like that, you know, so 10 years ago, I spent, I would say a bigly amount of time in my mid twenties sort of hiding from the world in my townhouse. And my reasons were good, too. Better than you might think. But I, that's really, that's all bullshit anyway, except for the fact that it sets the table for what I want to talk about here. So, yeah, my mid-twenties, uh, about ten years ago, give or take a few months. Take them, I guess. So like I say, hiding from the world, right? Now, we all live in denial, at least once in a while. For some of us, maybe that's a full-time thing, but I think we all, at, at the very minimum, kind of dabble with it from time to time. 
and sometimes we know when we're living in denial and I guess I guess that's what I think about whenever I hear this song you know that vague self-awareness of how fucked up everything is but like a total unwillingness to fix it back then especially things had a kind of unwelcome tendency to come crashing down around my ears in spite of my sincerest efforts but I kept trying anyway because I usually learn nothing from my mistakes let's just be real about that but still 10 years ago <laughs> it was a good start studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round nobody cares basketball year-round nobody cares put on a star trek uniform people get a case of the giggles yeah hi somebody told me they make comic books here that's from superman smallville you've been trying that jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade it doesn't work oh it works you guys must read too many comic books or something people do not masturbate in the dc universe that was the biggest load of crap i've ever heard Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm here to talk about some more X-Men comics. You see, kiddies, what I do, or at least what I've been doing lately, is I've been taking some time, just every few episodes, to 
kick back and just kind of shoot the breeze about some X-Men comics. But not just any X-Men comics. No, no. Nope. The X-Men comics that I've been primarily focusing all of my attention on has been the Grant Morrison run on the title called New X-Men, right? And so for a couple of episodes now, I've uh, talked about basically you could say the beginning of his run and then just gone right on through sequentially through his run on the series, you know? Now, you know, maybe once upon a time, I would have been tempted to turn this into some sort of a six episode mega series that's all about the X-Men and stuff, but I don't really see any real purpose in doing so right now. So maybe we can just chalk that up to changing in preference or something. I really don't know. But bottom line is, this just didn't seem like something that I wanted to turn into a six-episode mega series. So if you're wondering why these are being spread out rather than being concentrated and collected all together and then released sequentially, well, there you go. But as it goes for today, what I'm going to be doing is uh, talking about New X-Men, number 121 to number 126. This is a storyline entitled Imperial. And really the basic shtick behind all of this is that issues and conflicts and subplots and things that have been running through the previous two storylines really do boil over here and basically come to a head in a fiery explosion of action and all of this kind of fun stuff. So that's basically the shtick here. But there's a little bit of behind-the-scenes minutiae that I'm going to get into once I finish up the main summary and whatnot that I think maybe is going to put a different spin on some of the events of this story, but that comes later. At least for right now, this is New X-Men, number 121 to number 126. Story summary is as follows. Emma Frost and Jean Grey psychically probe Nova's body, and in the process discover that she and Professor Charles Xavier were fraternal twins, but the instant that Xavier became self-aware, he tried to kill his twin in the womb. Elsewhere, in the far reaches of space, the Shi'ar Empire is being slowly torn apart by the possessed Charles Xavier. Possessed, that is, by Cassandra Nova. Empress Lalandra sends Smasher through force space to warn the Earth of the villainous's coming. Unfortunately, Smasher arrives in a field populated by cows, and he loses consciousness before finding someone to whom he can spread his message. Elsewhere, the X-Men convene in Cerebra to share what they know about Cassandra Nova. As Jean and Emma's psychic evalu- uh, excavation reveals, she, meaning Cassandra Nova, is a living entity comprised of pure emotional energy, who used Charles's DNA to form a body for herself. In her mind, the universe and the womb that housed her brother are one and the same. Only she and Charles Xavier are real, as far as Cassandra Nova is concerned. Thus, her competition for survival is her twin brother, in quotation marks, and he must be killed. Inside a a body booby-trapped with numerous degenerative disorders, Xavier telepathically requests a last press conference for the X-Men to communicate his final message to humanity concerning mutant kind. Cyclops leaves Zorn 
in an attempt to find a way to, ex to save Xavier from dying. During the press conference, Beast discovers that the minor annoyance of a flu epidemic is in fact a, syst a systematic nano-sentinel attack. This bit of news, though, is overshadowed by the sudden reveal that the Imperial Guard is preparing to sterilize the entirety of mutant kind, starting with the X-Men. Aboard the Shi'ar destroyer, Cyclops pleads with his and Zorn's captors that, that the Charles Xavier, with whom they are allied, is the very same Cassandra Nova entity they seek to fight, but to no avail. Meanwhile, back at the X-Mansion, the Stepford Cuckoos ally with Angel to overthrow the invading Shi'ar, while Jean and Beast shelter the rest of the student body and the visiting media. Beast and Wolverine fend off the assaults of the Guardians when Smasher is finally found and able to convince, Glad convince Gladiator of the X-Men's innocence. As Cassandra Nova drives Alondra to command her fleet to die, Cyclops and Zorn fight their way to freedom, saving Lalandra in the process. Angel and the Cuckoos find Beak, who advises using the Guardian's stuff to free Emma Frost. Zorn heals the X-Men of their Sentinel infestations, which should be regarded as a clue, by the way. Afterwards, Jean Grey and Charles Xavier trick Cassandra into using Cerebra for her original goal of erasing mutant kind. Unfortunately for her, the moment she uses Cerebra to connect to the worldwide mutant population, she finds one thing in common to all of them. Charles Xavier. In the same moment, Jean Grey, who at that moment was becoming increasingly more powerful due to, ma to a manifestation of the Phoenix Force, psionically attacks Cassandra and forces her out of the professor's body. With Charles Xavier's mind restored to his body, Emma Frost uses Stuff's malleable body as a trick to entice Cassandra Nova back into her own body, which is now a mental prison for her boundless energy. Oh, and by the way, Charles Xavier is now miraculously able to use his legs. The end. So, what did I think? Well, at the time that these comics were coming out, People had a lot of questions about the true identity of Zorn, and God knows I did when I was reading these comics just a while ago as back issues, right? Because in case it, it hasn't been made clear to anybody just yet, I am not an authority on the X-Men by any means. So what you're listening to in these X-Men episodes when you sit here listening to me run my mouth, talking about especially the Grant Morrison run... What you're hearing is somebody who makes no pretense about knowing what the fuck he's talking about. So just bear that in mind. Now, all of this is kind of a lead up to saying that I, and apparently people reading these comics when they were coming out, believed with a high probability that Magneto not only survived the destruction of Genosha, but he was in fact masquerading as Zorn and secretly aiding the X-Men. And the reason for that is because Grant Morrison intended for Magneto to have miraculously survived the destruction of Genosha uh, and then to assume the identity of Zorn in order to assist the X-Men. So, in other words, we were right. Now, that is not exactly what ended up happening because at the risk of spoiling ahead, it's later revealed that Zorn... And when I say later revealed, I mean after Grant Morrison has left the title. It's later revealed that Zorn is, in fact, his own character and he does his own thing. But Grant Morrison intended him to be Magneto in disguise. And that's why 
it's implied on more than one occasion that he's using magnetic powers, specifically to flush the Sentinels out of out of the X-Men's bodies. So, in case you were thinking, uh, as you read all of this, that, you know what? Son of a bitch, this sounds like it could be Magneto in disguise. Well, just keep in mind, that is very much what was intended. But, unfortunately, never happened. So, that's pretty much that stuff, at least as far as backstory is concerned. Now, to get into New X-Men number 121, this is basically part of the Nuff Said project, which, for those of you who don't know, Nuff Said was basically a an experiment, or I don't even know really what to call it, but it was sort of like a theme for Marvel Comics cover dated February of 2002, where the issue is basically presented all or mostly without dialogue. And the challenge is, can you tell your story without using dialogue as a crutch? And I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe I talked about the Daredevil issue where Brian Michael Bendis did this very thing in some previous episode. But what we're seeing right now is basically Grant Morrison following that same essential concept, right? Can you tell a story that's either completely silent or else mostly silent? And, well, manifestly, the answer to that appears to be yes, because... Grant Morrison not only tells his story basically free of dialogue, but it's actually remarkably easy to follow. And, you know, this is because of the fact that there's no dialogue and it's, it's primarily visual. It's either really, really difficult to summarize this, this comic or else it's really, really easy. It's all in how you look at it. But... The thing that we that comes out here, the thing that we really need to be aware of is that Charles Xavier and Cassandra Nova were fraternal twins, and Xavier basically tried to kill her in the womb, but for whatever reason, was not successful, right? So that's pretty much that. Now, because of the fact that it's Grant Morrison, he tends to color outside the lines quite a bit when it comes to writing comics and, you know, just in terms of what comics ought to be. And so in today's world, we would call some of the symbols and shit that he uses in this in this issue, we would call these emojis. But I think at the time, these were just generally known as emoticons. But basically, instead of having thought balloons, as... Jean Grey and Emma Frost take a tour of Professor Xavier's mind. Instead of having thought balloons, they basically have emoticons. Because something, something Grant Morrison. So, anyway, just something to be aware of there. But because of the fact that I've never really had a whole lot of use for emoticons and whatnot, I'm sure there's a depth of storytelling here that I'm just fucking missing. Which... You know, that's unfortunate, but that's just kind of the way that things worked out. So, here we are. So, the part that kind of stood out to me, though, was the moment when Jean Grey entered this sort of mental fortress and came across Charles Xavier, I guess like an astral projection. It's basically a mental image, I suppose, of Charles Xavier, right? 
He's sitting in this sort of sunken pit. He's chained. His cranium is fucking massive. And the raw components, the, the pieces of his wheelchair are surrounding his, his head, right? And this sort of gave me a little bit of a, a vibe of, for those of you who are familiar with this, this sort of reminded me of the Salvador Dali painting, uh, Corpus Christi, where, well, fuck it, I, I'll just go ahead and talk about it. It's basically a painting that shows uh, Christ being crucified on a four-dimensional cube, which is to say a tesseract, right? And if you need to get a sort of like a mental picture of a tesseract, a 3D representation of it would be just like a standard cross, you know, sort of like a lowercase t shape. But instead of having one cross beam, it's actually got two. One cross beam goes one way. The other cross beam goes the other. So I'm not sure if that's really the best way of describing it. But again, podcasting, it's sort of an audio medium. So it's like I say, you could picture it as sort of like a cross, but instead of having one cross beam, it's got two. And and the, the, the cross beams go in opposing directions from one another. So anyway, so there you have it. And the the picture, this this painting, uh Corpus Christi, like I say, it shows it shows Christ being crucified on a four-dimensional cube, which again, Tesseract. So the intent of the painting, because of the fact that this is a 4D, um, this is a, a 4D cube, what we're supposed to infer, as it says in the Bible, that Christ is, uh, he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He's basically in control of everything. And there's some kind of interesting theology to that when you start thinking about the fact that he's being crucified on a four-dimensional cube. This implies his mastery over time as well as space. And it's one of those things that I've always kind of thought was a sort of insightful, I don't know, uh, it's basically just an insightful look at the Christian view of Jesus Christ, right? And the thing about it is that, you know, Christ is, he's not actually hanging on the four-dimensional cube. He's It's more like he's suspended and kind of floating in front of it, right? He's in the usual crucifixion pose, but he's suspended and sort of hanging in midair above the Tesseract, right? Or not above it, like right in front of it. And it's that specific aspect of Corpus Christi that this picture of Charles Xavier being surrounded by the components of his wheelchair sort of reminded me of, right? So... Originally, I didn't think a whole lot more about it other than that. You know, I, I, I thought, well, that's what it reminds me of. But art is a subjective thing, and so, you know, that may not necessarily be what Grant Morrison intended. Well, imagine my surprise, because fucking that's exactly what he intended. Like, I don't know if he specifically meant to reference Corpus Christi, per se, but he did have Salvador Dali on the brain whenever he dictated this... this sort of picture in the script to Frank Quietly. And so 
you know, there are some kind of disturbing aspects of this picture. You know, the kind of weird looking child drawings on the wall and the mannequins wearing gas masks and all of that weird shit. But the principal element of this illustration, you know, the centerpiece of it really is that sort of Dolly-esque image of Charles Xavier. And no, it was not in my imagination. That truly is what Grant Morrison intended. And I don't know, it's kind of nice sometimes to know that you're on the same page as the writer. So there's really no deeper significance to it than that. I just wanted to throw that all out there. And now I have. And that I think is basically it as far as, uh, as far as uh, new X-Men number 121 is concerned. Now to get into uh, this is new X-Men number 122. The part about this issue that really stood out, at least for me, one of the things that I just really dig about the X-Men is the fact that mutants have sort of mutant culture. You know, I've said on more than one occasion that they're not necessarily devoted to the same ideas, principles, institutions, maybe, that mankind is, right? And a good example of that is the willingness that many of them have to reject human names in favor of mutant names, right? So Eric Lyncher is not, in fact, Eric Lyncher in his mind. In his mind, he's Magneto, you know? Cyclops, well, he was born, he was given the name Scott Summers, but he's not really Scott Summers. He's Cyclops. And the reason for this is just mutant culture... I would almost want to compare it to the attitude that a lot of black people have that the names that they that some of them have are not really their names, they're slave names, you know? And so they they reject that in an attempt to reclaim their African roots, you know? And a similar type of mentality I think goes into the X-Men, or not X-Men, not just the X-Men, but mutants rejecting just sort of standard issue human names in favor of sort of single name descriptive labels, you know? Their abilities define who they are on some level or another. And the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about this is because there's this uh, section this page where Emma Frost addresses the uh, the student body of the Xavier Institute, and she says, As of Monday, there will be no more official time, uh, timetable. The traditional human education system upon which we have based many of our methods here at Xavier's is to be scrapped in favor of something more, or, or rather, is to be scrapped in favor of some more fluid approaches to learning. Our mission is still the same, to teach the skills necessary for survival in a world which still prefers to see us as freakish and threatening. But we also want to learn from you. We need your thoughts and fresh ideas for the future of mutant kind. And then in the meantime, et cetera, et cetera, she goes on to talk about Hank McCoy. He's out of the infirmary and he's feeling, he's feeling groovy now, so good for him. But this to me kind of speaks to the mutant willingness to sort of reinvent the wheel as necessary in order to develop a new society for mutant kind. And it's one of those things that it, it sometimes gets overlooked by a lot of writers that the X-Men, 
I don't know if, if it would be accurate to call them pacifists as such, but they are nevertheless integrationists. You know, they believe that the future is integration with mankind. But number one, that doesn't necessarily mean they view themselves as equal to, by which I mean the same as mankind. And number two, that they're necessarily averse to, one might say, inheriting the earth for themselves, as that's kind of an element of Grant Morrison's run up to this point that the human race has about three, maybe four generations, and then it's going to be extinct to be replaced by mutants or perhaps by something else, right? And so the X-Men as a group are willing to live side by side with mankind, but they're not necessarily devoted to mankind. They're not really connected to it. Push comes to shove, they're, they're as willing as, you might say, the Brotherhood or the other side to have their own lives, their own society, their own culture, their own norms, their own fashion, etc., etc., right? And this, to me, sort of goes back to universe building where they're not necessarily on the same page as us. And the reason for that is because when you come right down to it, their needs may not be the same as our needs. And it to me, it shows that Grant Morrison has his thinking cap on whenever he realizes that, you know, they're not necessarily going to be locked into a sort of a, a 7.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. type of model for education. You know, they may want to do something maybe a little bit more holistic where instead of going to school and then having a personal life, you have a personal life in school, you know? You never really leave. Or maybe it'll be something else. I mean, who's to say? But the bottom line is they don't necessarily see themselves as having to follow the same sort of uh, customs and practices of, of human society. You know, they're not bound by those same obligations and those same traditions, you know? And to me, that's a very insightful way of writing X-Men, you know? And I don't know if other people necessarily get into that as much as I do, but I think, like I say, this is just really clever, and I just, I dig it, you know? This is a very clever way to write the X-Men, you know? So, and that's really about the most I really had to say for uh, for that particular issue. Now, to move on to... New X-Men number, you know, 123, really the standout sort of moment or moments of this issue is basically Esme Cuckoo having, she basically gets a boyfriend and the other Stepford Cuckoos don't really approve, you know, and I'm kind of reading between a, a, a lot of different lines, but Basically, what I'm assuming is that the Stepford Cuckoos have been mentally bonded with one another ever since they were infants. And so the, the idea of one of them breaking off from the group in order to have a boyfriend upsets the apple cart probably in more ways than one. I mean, there's the obvious fact that, you know, her connection to the Cuckoos is now being diminished. But the other maybe more practical thing is that I get the idea that the Stepford Cuckoos are extremely sheltered. You know, they, if you follow my meaning, they don't really have a whole lot of experience, you know? 
None of them have ever really had a boyfriend. They've probably never been kissed. And this whole idea of dating is completely foreign to them. And I think that they're sort of hostile to the members of the Stepford Cuckoos doing this, you know? They don't really understand, I guess, the idea of dating or the allure of dating, you know? And, I mean, as I've said in, you know, uh, the last new X-Men episode, I fucking love the Stepford Cuckoos. I think they're... I think there's just, first off, they're just really interesting characters. But second, they're really fucking funny characters, you know? And because they don't number the fucking pages here, I can't tell you exactly what page it's on. But um, at the bottom of whichever page it is that shows Esme Cuckoo uh, kissing the boy, you can see dialogue coming in from the background and uh, that says, and that's exactly the sort of thing we're talking about. You see, she's kissing him now. And then the other uh, uh, cuckoo says, that practically makes her a slut. Emma Frost says, really, girls, who is this boy? Is he some fresh addition to our grisly cast of misfits? And then various of the uh, cuckoos say, we have absolutely no idea. He's from Japan. He has 3D recall, whatever that's supposed to mean. We think he's completely taken over Esme's mind. To which Emma Frost replies, well, the first blush of young love can often feel exactly like invasion of the dignity snatchers. But treasure those feelings, girls. It all turns sour soon enough. And then they reply, We're the Stepford Cuckoos, Miss Frost. Combined, we're a single brilliant mind. Without Esme, we're just four smart blondes. Actually, if you really, if you really want to know what we think, it, if you really want to know, we think it's a plot of some kind. It's not like her to do this. And then Emma Frost replies, perhaps not previously, but for now, he is her Dante, she is his Beatrice. Think Romeo and Juliet, Tristan and Isolde, Tom and Bloody Jerry. She'll grow out of it, and her diary will be filled with regrets. That's the tragedy behind all Cupid's twanging girls. And I don't know, I kind of like, you know, Emma Frost, who... I think a good description of her could be worldly. Basically telling these sort of emotionally stunted twins a little bit about the facts of life, admittedly from a kind of jaded and cynical view. But nevertheless, you know, she's coming at this from obviously a, a very different perspective than the cuckoos are. And... I don't know. I just fucking, I, I could read, I could read a title about Emma Frost just shooting the shit with the, the Stepford Cuckoos and the things that they say to one another. And I don't know. This is just, it's really interesting. It's really funny. And it's, I think it's really insightful stuff. I mean, Grant Morrison gets a lot of shit, I think, for his sort of unconventional approach to writing comics. And I'm going to admit that there are times when he probably does go up his own ass a little bit in terms of trying to be as different as he possibly can. You know, with this... People keep wanting to call it weird, trippy, druggy type of approach to writing comics, and I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. But I think it also tends to overlook that he's got a very sharp eye for character, you know? And... To me, it's just... It's a little bit of a disservice 
to him to be quite so dismissive of him and his talents. So I'm not out to tell anybody that they're wrong or that they're stupid or anything like that. I'm just saying that I've got a different opinion of, of Grant Morrison. I'm, shall we say, a little bit more moderate because some of Grant Morrison's fans are just fucking weird. I'm going to be honest with you. But some of his haters, I sometimes think they, they're maybe they're missing the forest for the trees, you know? So anyway, again, that's not a criticism on anybody. I'm not bashing on anybody. I'm just saying that I think there's more... I don't merit, I suppose, to the to uh, Grant Morrison as a writer, right? So that I think is uh, pretty much it, really. For well, no, actually, there is actually one more thing that I wanted to go through. It's sort of on that same note. Esme's boyfriend. This actually does sort of come up again in the same issue near the end. Cato basically unmasks himself as an alien invader. And the other cuckoos basically say that they, well, what they say for word for word really is something terrible is about to happen and your so-called boyfriend's a part of it. To which Esme replies, no, you're just jealous. No, it's true, Esme. We tried to tell you there was something funny about him. And then at that moment, Cato's fucking face melts off and he says, Cato was just my human disguise. I am stuff. Advanced scout of the Shi'ar Super Guardian team assigned to lifeform sterilization procedure. To which Esme replied, But you read me poetry. You said we were in love. And Stuff replies, And like a fool, you believed me. Prepare for sterilization. And then here we see that shit is about to go down because you've got Gladiator and basically some pretty fucking dangerous looking guys from... Uh, the Shi'ar Empire here to kick an unprecedented amount of ass. So, as all of this is going on, Emma Frost tries to uh, shield the Stepford Cuckoos, saying, try not to let this experience put you off boys, Esme. <laughs> and again, it's just, it's it's funny, I love it, and it's, it's just, it, it's tons of fun. It's tons of fun. I love it. So, Skipping ahead a fair amount, this is New X-Men number 124, and if it sounds like I kind of have a little bit of an obsession with uh, the Stepford Cuckoos, well, there may be a germ of truth to that, because basically what we have here is the Stepford Cuckoos are basically trying to recruit Angel into fighting back against the against the Shi'ar. And when you think about it, I mean, the adults, which is to say Jean Grey, Emma Frost, and Hank McCoy, they basically all have their hands full with other tasks. And so there's an extent to which it's kind of up to the students to coordinate their own defense, at least somewhat. And so uh, to start with, Angel socks stuff upside the head, and that basically reverts him back to his sort of protoplasmic form. And as all of that's going on, Jean Grey is trying to do crowd control and get everybody uh, sorted out and ensconced into Cerebra. This consists of the student body as well as news media who had been on the scene at the time. And again, it's just the point. the point here is that they've all sort of got their own 
designated thing that they need to be doing right now. But that only takes them so far because after a while the Shi'ar forces invade uh, X Mansion. And then after that, everybody pretty much has to fight and defend themselves. And, you know, when you think about it, I mean, it kind of says something about uh, the X-Men and the students at the Xavier Institute that they're tough enough that they can hang with, I guess you could say, the elite guard from the Shi'ar fucking empire. I mean, when you think about it, guys, that's ridiculously fucking powerful, you know? So it's just one of those moments that reminds you that, yeah, you know, the X-Men, they do have their weaknesses, but don't ever think that they're, that they're sitting ducks. I mean, these people will fuck you up. We're talking scorched earth. Now, that having been said, goings on with X-Men or new X-Men number 124, it's not entirely good because... I don't know what the fuck happened to Igor uh, Corday in this in this issue. He's usually pretty reliable. I don't know what the hell happened, but it's it's like his art has that weird fucked up scratchy style to it, and it almost in some page uh, on some pages it almost looks like it was inked by Bill Sienkiewicz or something. I mean, it just it's fucking bad, you know. And if that sounds like I'm kind of bashing on Bill Sienkiewicz, it could be because I'm kind of bashing on Bill Sienkiewicz. I just don't really like his art style. And the thing is, it's not necessarily a, a, a consistent thing. You know, some pages actually look passable. Some pages look, I don't know, just weird, like scratchy, unfinished something, you know? I don't know. It's hard to describe. And, you know, he does fight scenes really well, don't get me wrong, but it's like there's the art, it's like it was just rushed or something for this issue. I don't know. It's fucked up. So don't really know what, you know, what, what the deal with all of this was. So anyway, skipping ahead, though, to X-Men number 126. Thankfully, Frank Quitely comes back for this, and that's good because we... I at least prefer new X-Men when it's Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely not trying to shit talk any any of the other other pencilers but to me this really is frank and grant's book you know and the other artists you know they may be good talented interesting in their own right or what have you but i prefer it with with frank quietly on the art so there you have it so we get a little bit more with the Stepford Cuckoos and Emma Frost. And again, I, I just eat this stuff up with a spoon. I mean, I realize that as a writer, you have a larger story that you're trying to tell. And so you don't necessarily have time to, you know, overindulge yourself in just sort of funny stuff like Emma Frost hanging out with the Stepford Cuckoos. But I could just, uh, I love it, love it. This stuff is just... It's gold, you know? I mean, it's character gold, it's comedy gold, it's dramatic gold. I mean, there is very little of this that doesn't hit the mark, you know? And I just dig the Stepford Cuckoos. And it's the nature of comics, I guess, that, you know, when when these new concepts and new characters get introduced, they get developed and evolved over time. And you can reach that jump the shark moment with characters where they have strayed so fucking far away from their core premise that it's 
it's really not the same thing anymore. Now, to be fair, I haven't actually read any of the future stories related to the Stepford Cuckoos, basically the post-Grant Morrison stuff. So I'm not in the best position to comment on that, but I do have a little bit of an insight on what happens there. You know, especially in uh, issues and incidents relating to Sophie and Esme. And I just don't approve. You know, to me, that's not what the, what the Stepford Cuckoos are supposed to be. But again, you have to evolve and define these characters as time goes on. So, you know, I guess you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. But this is just not what the Cuckoos were meant to be, in my opinion. So... I don't know. It just seems like a hell of a waste in the big scheme of things. And in a weird kind of way, I'd actually want to compare this to the evolution that Superboy, which is to say the clone of Superman who was introduced in Reign of the Superman from 1993. The evolution that that character underwent over the next like 10 or 15 years, when all was said and done, he was taken so far away from his core premise that I kind of thought that, you know, somebody lost the point somewhere along the line here, you know? I don't know when it happened. Maybe the minute Jeff Johns started writing it, I don't know. But there came a point when he started, or rather, he stopped being this kind of young, teenage, ne'er-do-well version of Superman. And he sort of became something else. And I don't think that really worked to the long-term benefit of the character. Now, again... You gotta develop these characters over time, and sometimes that development goes in the wrong direction. I get that. But I don't think it worked to the benefit of Superboy, and I certainly don't think it, from the sounds of it, I don't think it's gonna work to the benefit of the Stepford Cuckoos either. So, I don't know. All around, it just seems a little bit uh, unfortunate in some cases. But one of the things, though, that comes out specifically in this issue is that Jean Grey has absorbed Professor X's entire fucking consciousness into her mind. Aided and abetted, no doubt, by the Phoenix Force, but she's still doing it, you know? And when you think about it, she's in possession now, not only of her own consciousness, but also of Xavier's. And she's stretching herself almost beyond her limitations to do it. It's a serious pain in the... Well, I guess I can't say pain in the nuts. It's a serious pain in the ovaries for her to do it, but she is doing it, you know? And, it, and again, it just speaks to the fact of just how fucking powerful the X-Men really are, that they can do stuff like this, you know? And she actually comes up with a very clever way, number one, of solving her problem of housing Xavier's consciousness, and also setting a trap for uh, Cassandra Nova and, you know, dispersing bits and pieces of Xavier's consciousness across all of, I guess you, for lack of a better word, mutant kind, so that uh, when Cassandra finally uh, connects to Cerebra, she doesn't know it, but she's actually played right into Jean's hands, and she's pretty much just walked into her trap. And, I don't know, I mean, that's really the main resolution of, of this story. I like it. It's, uh, like I say, it's just, it, it's a ton of fun. This entire book is a ton of fun. And so what I hope is that any of you who have a prejudice against Grant Morrison as a writer because of this, that, or the other, guys, just give it a chance. You know, I mean, 
There are very few comics that I outright hate. There are a ton of comics that I really enjoy. And there are very, very few comics that I just, from the heart, love. But the Grant Morrison X-Men is definitely one of those comics that I just fucking love. And guys, if I love something, I hope that my credibility with you is now such that a recommendation from me is actually worth something, you know? That you guys can actually... I don't trust me, you know? So when I say that this is worth reading, I just hope that, you know, guys, I'm not leading you down the wrong path. I really do believe that you'd get a serious kick out of this, you know? So anyway, give it a shot. Satisfaction guaranteed. You know, this stuff is all in a trade paperback. It's all in an omnibus. I mean, there are tons of ways to uh, to get your hands on this material. I mean, shit, the, the actual back issues can't cost that much. And these stories are just so much fun. They're so imaginative. They speak so clearly to character. You know, there are so many amazing and innovative concepts bouncing around here. I mean, the sky is the fucking limit here. You know, and I, and again, I have to tell you that this is, this really is my preferred lineup of the X-Men. You know, where you have Cyclops, Beast, Wolverine, Jean Grey, and Emma Frost, and Professor X you know, on the team. And I'm not saying that other lineups don't have, you know, something to recommend them. I'm sure they're quite enjoyable in their own right. But this is the lineup of the team that I think I'm always going to like the most. You know, I reserve the right to change my mind, but I think this is the one I'm always going to love the most. So like I say, satisfaction guaranteed. I know you guys are, are going to love it. Or at the very least, I know you guys need to give this a chance. And I, like I say, I hope by now my word means something to you guys. So hopefully that's that. So I think that's pretty much it for me in this segment. So what I'm going to do is take a break and be right back after these messages with a little bit of listener feedback. Stay tuned. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... 
while, while I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday... So, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Hey, Vato, man, check your mail. Because your new mail is smart enough and good enough and doggone it, people like you. That's why they send you mail. Read the mail! Read the mail! Read the mail! You've got mail. (coughs) You have 937 messages, all of which are marked urgent. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback that I want to work through here. Well, I say it's a little bit. Usually what I do in these feedback sections is I only make my way through one or two emails, like usually two at the most, but frequently it's more like one. So what I'm going to try doing here is to shoot for the moon and try knocking out three pieces of email. We'll see if I can actually manage that or not, but that is the agenda. Three emails. So, <clears throat> without further ado, this first uh, bit of uh, feedback, this is dated September the 23rd, 2014. This comes from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime. Subject of the email is Superman Earth 1, Volume 2. So, three guesses, which, which episode... Uh, fanboy Miss Prime is responding to here. Prime writes, Hey Magnus, listen to your review of Superman Earth 1 Volume 2 and it was fun. Though, man did it get creepy when you fully explored the implications of Superman making a revolution happen because the leader got in the way of uh, Soup's helping people. And what could happen if Superman felt other countries needed to change their leadership? And Uh, Though, in the early post-crisis era, Superman did literally, as one man, disarm Karak's entire military, which, oddly enough, faded into the background more than one would expect, to be honest. Can't remember what episode of From Crisis to Crisis it was in, but that's where I first even heard of that. Again, one of those things you'd think would have been brought up more than it was. I'm going to put your email on pause here, Prime, and just say... You know, I remember when Superman Earth 1 Volume 2 came out, and there were a lot of comparisons to what the post-crisis Superman did in Kurok, in as much as, in both of those cases, Superman basically overthrew a government. But honestly, if you ask me, that's really where the similarities end. The Burn Age Superman, and I'm going off memory here, it's been a long time since I read read that uh, Kurok story, so I, I, I could be completely wrong on this, but like my memory of it, 
was that basically the government got with Superman and they said, look, this is what we need to happen. And I forget why they didn't do it themselves. There was some business or other that was going on. But for whatever reason, they could not do it themselves. And so they asked Superman to do it. And so he kind of reluctantly did it. You know, he wasn't happy to be doing it, but he did it reluctantly. And then ultimately he decided that doing it was a mistake. He shouldn't, he, he shouldn't have done it. What he, really what he should have done is uh, basically tell the United States government, look, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not your puppet and I'm not your errand boy, you know. And there, wa there were some plot things that came out of this, but I think as much as anything, you know, the significance of the story was supposed to be why Superman doesn't fly all around the world fixing everybody's problems, right? Because if you set Superman in a vaguely realistic world, we live in a world where there are famines, where there are food shortages, people live under the heels of military tyrants, so on and so forth. And so if a, if a fictional world exists, either those, those problems can exist, or if Superman exists in a fictional, realistic world, he's not really doing his job, one might think, if he doesn't take action on those things. And so what I think the intent of that Superman and, and Karak thing was supposed to was supposed to be was Superman realizing why it is that, you know, look, it's one thing to stop bank robbers or something like that in downtown Metropolis, but overthrowing a, a, a foreign government is way out of line, you know? And that was supposed to be, I think, the takeaway message from it. And that's not really the takeaway message, at least that I got, from Superman Earth-1 Volume 2. Um, I already forget the name of that island nation that uh, whose government Superman overthrew. But basically, Superman, uh, by the time the story ends, <clears throat> he believes that he's in the right. And... Certainly, I think the reader is supposed to believe that Superman is in the right, too. But the other thing is that Superman indirectly killed at least one person in Superman Earth-1 Volume 2 by giving the rebels all those guns and stuff. Whereas in the Karak Burn Age Superman story, I, I don't remember anybody dying, at least not by Superman's hand, either directly or indirectly. And so, to me, I mean, I know that they are kind of similar to one another, at least superficially. But when you pick it apart a little bit, there are some differences there. And one could argue that in, that the entire dramatic thrust of Superman Earth 1 Volume 3 was Superman learning the error of his ways. And I think, you know, even that I would kind of dispute at least somewhat because what Superman learned, and, or at least what he professed in Superman Earth 1 Volume 3 was that he shouldn't overthrow governments with which he disagrees because that makes humans nervous. He, it's not that he was wrong to have done it. It was doing so makes other people a little nervous, and so maybe he shouldn't do that. And so he's basically doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And Superman, if you ask me, he should do the right thing for the right reasons, or if he does the wrong thing for the right reasons or the right thing for the wrong reasons. He needs to see the error of his ways after a certain point, you know? And that didn't really happen with Superman Earth-1. Now, that doesn't make Superman Earth-1 bad or anything like that. It's just, it's basically a characterization of Superman that I don't think I agree with, you know?
So anyway, that that I think is really the difference between the two, in case you're curious, Prime, which I'm not actually sure that you are. So to get back into your email, though, <clears throat> as for DC superheroes trying to avoid being in the real world, quote unquote, I like to view it more as things like Hugo Danner, the Justice Society, the All-Star Squadron, the Creature Commandos, the Young All-Stars, and whatever could be salvaged from Milestone and Wildstorm to fit into that before the modern day rise of superheroes changed the direction of the world. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know, I kind of agree with that, but, you know, one of the things, at least with the Justice Society that I like, is the fact that ultimately the United States government betrayed them. You know, and at least for me, that's a major part of the Justice Society's myth. You know, that's a big part of their backstory. At some point or another, they had to get betrayed in some way or another by the United States government. And I think it works really well in a World War II type of context where after uh, after World War II, Basically, one could say that America during that time was guilty of selling out a lot of people that really should have been allies. You know, America made a lot of really fucking bad decisions during that time. And I kind of like the idea of the superhero community getting kind of their own sort of blowback from that. You know, here's a group that by all rights should be considered heroes by any standard. You know, but yet they're railroaded by the government anyway because of the fact that some there, there's some kind of imperfection with the government. I mean, yeah, America represents <clears throat> uh, and aspires to a certain type of ideal, and I'm fine with that. You know, as a patriotic American, I mean, I, I kind of believe that. But I also believe that there are many, many, many times when America falls short of its own ideals. You know, and I kind of like the idea of the world just not being in, or maybe not even the world, maybe America just being in a really fucking weird place, such that, you know, maybe they will prosecute, or sorry, persecute uh, the Justice Society. You know, that they will make bad decisions at times, and maybe they even have to live with the consequences of that. You know, I kind of like that idea, you know, and... To me, it's just it's a major part of who the Justice Society is, you know. So, again, I understand what you're – at least I think I understand what you're going for here. I just wanted to interject this and just kind of throw that out there and see what comes back to me. So, anyway, getting back into Prime e Prime's email, though, he writes, which all is better than the late 90s and early 2000s Wildstorm stuff. Oh, man, that stuff has not aged well. All secret UN conspiracies and a thousand superpower – hillbilly with the names of the seven brothers that at least one of them is his rapist father. <laughs> I mean, seriously, Wildstorm, what were you thinking? It all comes off as being overblown and over the top because we don't have to deal with the comics code authority. Then again, I also wanted to try to adapt this material for my DC Presents cartoon and keep the flavor of things instead of do things like how Professor Pig was turned into a, a drug-using... A body horror, uh, body horror making maniac into a be a good to the planet or die eco terrorist. And I'm going to put your email on pause and say, yeah, you know, a lot of that, really, a lot of like mid to late 90s image is basically however many 
image founders were still working at that company at the time, trying to figure out just what the fuck are we going to do now? Because, you know, after that big, uh, I don't know, comic book crash of 1993, you know, you had basically DC and Marvel to varying degrees were able to weather the storm fairly successfully, at least on a creative level, right? But, you know, the whole... I don't want to say that, like, the comic book uh, frenzy of the late 80s and early 90s, it's not like Image Comics is somehow responsible for all of that, but they they were nevertheless emblematic of all of that. And, you know, the, the types of comics that they made their bones on, what, it was pretty much exactly like you described, these way over-the-top, overblown, you know, minimal... Uh, story and uh, plot development, but really heavy on huge guns and lots of action and all of this other stuff. And basically, they were a lot like the action movies of their time, but with superheroes. And so they were basically grappling with what are we going to do? What are we going to be if we can't be this anymore? And, you know, I'm, it's like on the one hand, I don't want to take anything away from the validity of what you're saying. Prime, but on the other hand, I mean, it's, I can't really fault somebody for not necessarily knowing exactly how things were ultimately, basically how to survive the market. You know, when the market's going as topsy-turvy as comics were in the mid to late 90s, basically trying to find some way of surviving. And at least in the case of Wildstorm, their way of surviving was selling themselves to DC Comics. So anyway... Again, just wanted to interject all of that. Get back into Prime's email, though. And speaking of realism, there was the Green Arrow and Green Lantern 70s run for making it real, and the views from the Long Box episode on that. And no, Michael Bailey has not been paying me. If he was, I'd get back to him and tell him to release more Tales of the JSA episodes. <laughs> you and me both, man. Oh, and will you review the Teen Titans Earth-1 books, uh, Earth-1 book when it comes out, Magnus? Because the Titans need some love, as I'm not sure what DC has been thinking with that property. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, you know what, dude, you and me both. Now, Prime, I'm going to be very honest with you. I've never really been like a big Titans guy. And so, what? first off, I'm not going to promise anything. But second, if I was going to, if I was going to talk about uh, the Teen Titans Earth 1... I might try roping Tom Panarese into something like that just because instantly I'm going to have somebody on the show, on the episode, who's more of a, uh, of a Titans authority than I could ever hope to be. And maybe he can help me find my way with that a little bit. So I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not going to say yes and I'm not going to say no. I'm just going to say I'll give it some thought and let you know what I come up with. But anyway, get back into uh, uh, Prime's email, though. He writes... A.H. Smallville Season 4, the season the Spectre or Phantom Stranger needed to uh, uh, pimp slap some magical crap, and Clark needed to hang out with a Monel and find out there had been a Justice Society as he worked with uh, Damage, Obsidian, Our Man Second, Jesse Quick, Jade, and the Son of Wildcat to get those Kryptonian stones. And someone joking if there were five of them, including Hart. <laughs> I see what you did there. All right. Yeah, you know, Prime, uh, one of the things, look, I love Smallville, okay? And, you know, that's 
obviously that's probably not much of a secret, but one of the things that I really do wish Smallville had done is, yeah, they ultimately brought the Legion of Superheroes in, and I dig that, but honestly, that's something that really should have happened, if you ask me, sometime in the first four seasons of the show, and like how you would make that work on a stylistic level considering the tone of Smallville during those four, those first four seasons, you know, how you'd make that work, I don't know, okay? But what I will say is that, to me, if if you're going to do a Superman origin story, which is ultimately what Smallville is, if you're going to do a Superman origin story, one of the, one of the, one of the things that you need to do is give Superman, or at least Clark, in this origin story, you need to give Clark some kind of a heritage, you know? What is he inheriting in terms of superheroics, you know? What is the state of the Union as far as uh, superheroes in the world that, that Clark Kent has grown up in? And I kind of like the idea of Clark Kent, young Clark Kent, meeting one or more members of the uh, Justice Society, and not necessarily being mentored, but somehow discovering the Justice Society's history, you know? That's what Clark is inheriting, you know? And I think it's important that the Justice Society, as I say, be railroaded by the United States government, you know? It just seems like a very America circa World War II, World War II thing to do, you know? I just, that seems easy to believe for me, you know? That's what Clark needs to inherit. And then at at around that same time, preferably sometime after, Clark also needs young Clark also needs to meet the Legion of Superheroes so that he can get a sense of his own legacy. So the Justice Society or what's left of them should be Clark's heritage. The Legion of Superheroes needs to be Superman's ultimate legacy. You know, that's what he ultimately leaves behind, you know? And I like the idea of Superman inheriting basically uh, the splinters of the Justice Society on the one hand, and then on the other hand, ultimately leaving behind the Legion of Superheroes, you know? I like that dynamic, you know? And I don't really understand why that hasn't really ever been a major element of young Clark's origin into becoming Superman, or at least if it has, I'm just not thinking of anything offhand, but you know, for whatever reason, that's just something that really hasn't ever happened. And I like the idea of Superman kind of being the pivot point of all of civilization where superheroes might've been tolerated briefly, but ultimately they were always going to be outlawed before Superman came along. And then after Superman has done his thing, ultimately, you've got the Legion of Superheroes who are going to become, on some level or another, part of the government. And that's what Superman is leaving behind. And I just like that, you know? It it, it plays for me. And I think it really... I think it would have been really epic in some ways if Smallville had done that. But in other ways, I mean... I can kind of understand where that would have been a, a little bit of a detraction from Clark's story just because 
we'll never see the totality of what happened with the Justice Society in Smallville. And we're never going to really see what the Legion of Superheroes are really like on Smallville. And so, you know, we get kind of hints of it here and there, but we never really get the full the fullness of either of those things. And so it makes sense to me, I guess, why it is that neither of those things were ever completely incorporated into Smallville. And so ultimately I'm okay with that. I just think that those ideas of the Justice Society and the Legion of Superheroes meeting young Clark Kent or meeting young Superboy on his way up, I think those ideas have a lot of merit to them. So anyway, to get back into uh, Prime's email, though, he writes... Anyway, glad you enjoyed Veronica Mars and had something to, uh, something good to watch instead of, well, crap. And glad the show got a movie. Crowdfunded successfully at that. And glad you enjoy it. And sad that it didn't answer questions from the end of Season 3. And for my comic reading, uh, to mention this time, reading Chris Claremont's Nightcrawler series and enjoying it. Till next time, fan Boyamus Prime. And Prime, thank you so much uh, for this feedback. Really do appreciate it. This is this is really good. Next, <clears throat> uh, guys, back in episode number 226, I I did some feedback, and then after doing so, I, su- I told you guys that I've been sitting on an email that I got from Sean Engel, obviously before he passed away, and I wasn't really sure whether or not I should read it you know, on mic. And ultimately what I decided is, you know, and honestly, I mean, the outpouring of, you know, support that I got for this is obviously that is a major factor of this decision too. Ultimately I decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to go ahead and read it because this is, I mean, Sean sent this email knowing that it was probably going to be read on mic and he was obviously okay with that. And, you know, when he was alive. And so now that he's gone, I don't think he would mind it being read on mic now. I don't think he would want that to not happen. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it. And this is dated December the 2nd, 2014. The subject line is Emerald Dawn Podcast. And Sean Engel writes, Greetings, Your Excellency. Sorry. Greetings, Your Excellency. I was really thrilled to hear that you were going to be covering the Christopher Priest slash Keith Giffen penned Emerald Dawn, as it is my favorite origin story for Hal Hal Jordan. Now, let me preface this with the fact that I have not currently read the Jeff Johns version so I can't make a comparison, but since I know that elements for the rest of Johns' run were seeded in that story, I'll take your word for it that I'll take your word for that being a better origin. <clears throat> I'm sorry, guys, just a sec. In fact, the Emerald Dawn story really doesn't have much to do at all with the ongoing series unless you consider it a a precedent for how being able to enter the Owen Central Battery and gain immeasurable power. Even the big plot of him drinking and driving was completely omitted from the ongoing series. However, 
It was perfectly handled in the follow-up to the story, Emerald Dawn 2, which showed how accepting his responsibility for his actions while also fleshing out the character of Sinestro. This was a series that I enjoyed more than Emerald Dawn, and I hope that one day that you might decide to do a show on it. As for the idea of Hal being an alcoholic, I'd have to question that. Yes, Hal got drunk and decided to drive drunk, resulting in the accident which brutally injured his friends. But that was a moment of poor choice, a single stupid act. Throughout the series, I never felt that Hal had an actual dependence on alcohol a la Tony Stark. He was never shown sneaking from a flask uh, prior to piloting an experimental craft for Ferris or coming home to booze it up after a, a def- uh, after a defeat of Hector Hammond. <sighs> oh, Jesus is hard. It was a moment of weakness and a poor choice, and there were consequences for it. Initially, Hal, like most people, wanted to blame the mistake on anything but himself, but in the end he realized that he was the one to blame, and he made the decision to turn himself in. Heck, he was even going to do that before the end of the story, but the police station was busted up by Legion, preventing that. This doesn't seem to me to be the actions of an alcoholic, but the actions of someone who made a bad mistake and wants to make amends. Anyhow, I'm still enjoying... I'm still enjoying all your output, and I will remain your humble listening vassal. Sincerely, Sean Engel. (sighs) I miss you, Sean. I miss you, bro. Okay. Uh, Just a second, guys, because I think I've earned this. I'm sorry, guys. That was a lot harder than I thought. So, um, anyway. um, And honestly, to even reply to that email is just, it's going to tear me up. So, um, I can read his email, but uh, replying to it is beyond me. So, um, I'm just going to attempt the most awkward transition in podcast history. I'm just going to move straight into uh, this. This is the third email. This is dated December the 23rd, 2014. This comes from my friend uh, Tom Panarese. Title of this email is uh, Episode 75 Internet BS. And Tom writes, <clears throat> Tom writes, Your Holiness, just wanted to write in quickly to let you know how much I enjoyed Episode 75, especially your lengthy conversation with Chris Honeywell about Facebook. It was quite possibly one of the most insightful conversations about both Facebook and social media as a whole that I've ever heard. Uh, Tom, I'm going to put your email on pause here and just say that... um, Oh, great. Now I'm getting text messages from Dave Atterbury. How perfect is this? Guys, in case you were curious, he seems like he really enjoyed Justice League. So uh, take from that whatever you think it's worth. So anyway, uh, Tom, I'm going to put your email on pause here and say I don't exactly remember everything that... 
I said in that episode because obviously it was a pretty long time ago. But I know what I've been thinking about Facebook for a pretty long time now. So um, I think I can, you know, take some guesses here. But honestly, you know, in the past like year or so, my opinion of Facebook really has. I mean, if it, if it was possible for it to get lower, it really has, in fact, gotten lower. And a good example of what I mean is the fact that it was a couple of days ago. And Tom, I don't, honestly don't know if you saw this or not, but it was it was a couple of days ago where some uh, former uh, co-founder of uh, Facebook basically admitted, "Yeah, we knew that." or rather we knew at the time that we were making this that basically Facebook was, you know, once it was completed, it was going to have all the same basic properties and effects of a drug. We knew that and we made it anyway. So, you know, and, you know, when you think about it, you know, there is a certain level of uh, dopamine that gets released whenever you see that somebody has liked one of your statuses or, some way or another they've reacted to it or they've commented on it or something like that. And so I guess apart from appealing to narcissism, which everybody has, I mean, it's not like the peop only the people who use Facebook, you know, they're, they're the only narcissists in the entire world. Everyone has it to some degree or another. So, but basically it's like Facebook, number one, it appeals to the deepest, darkest aspects of people's nature and then it does so in a very seductive and addictive type of way. And honestly, it's just fucking evil. You know, it really is. I mean, I need it, or at least I use it, to promote my podcast and stuff. But I've really backed away from Facebook in, in recent weeks. And I've, you know, it's it's really been fairly minimal, you know. And I don't know. The other thing is, Tom, you know, I've been using a mantra. And, and Tom, I honestly don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but I've been using a mantra on uh, Facebook quite a lot. And it basically goes like this. Um, actually, and you know what? I'm not even going to try to, uh, I'm not even uh, 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 going to try to uh, recite it, all of it here, because it is a little bit uh, nuanced and in depth. And so, you know, what I'm going to do is, Lord, why, why does it do this? Just show me the goddamn update. And this is something else. I mean, sometimes Facebook, um, you know, what they'll do is they'll make searching for shit just as hard as they possibly can. You know, I don't know. It's, it's kind of annoying to tell you the truth. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. I can't save the world. But even if I could save the world... That's not my job. But even if it was my job, nobody can save the world by posting crap on Facebook. And that's something that I that I've just been, you know, repeating to myself and reminding myself over and over and over again. And the reason for that is because people seem to mistake posting a bunch of bullshit on Facebook as like real uh, advocacy as real activism or real action. And it's not. I mean, look, dude, what, what, 
these people have done is they've changed their Facebook picture. Okay? I'm sorry, asshole. You're not changing the world by changing your Facebook picture. Okay? It's just, it, it, it's fucking stupid. And, I mean, I get it. You know, it's basically, uh, it's basically virtue signaling. It's another way of saying, hey, here's something really popular that fucking nobody disagrees with that I agree with too because that's how awesome I am. It's just, it's just the most fucking gutless thing you can possibly do. And there's going to be literally no blowback to it. None whatsoever, you know? I take a stand against cancer because there are so many people out there advocating for cancer. We need more cancer. Yeah, there's somebody on the other side of that argument. Huh. Dude, you are so fucking brave for standing up to cancer, dude. I mean, I thought it was really brave when our great-grandfathers went overseas uh, to, uh, to fight fascists and shit like that. You know, I used to think that was the gold standard of bravery, but then I saw your fucking Facebook picture where you took a stand against cancer and I had to completely fucking redefine my entire conception of heroism and bravery. It's just fucking stupid, you know? And yes, people, if you've ever changed your Facebook picture in solidarity with something, I hold you in moral fucking contempt. Okay. I morally judge you for doing that. God. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to blow up like that, but jeez. Anyway, moving right along into Tom's email, because we're supposed to be talking about him, not me. Uh, Tom writes, being a teacher, not a day goes by where I have to hear about, A, some bullshit drama that my students are involved in, which often leads to a fight or meeting with parents or something equally annoying, or B, how social media is vital to my field from some educational pundit who does nothing but bloviate about social media on social media because he or she is getting paid to blovi to bloviate about social media on social media. Meanwhile, I look at the pile of work I have to do and realize that if there were no social media, I'd still have a pile of work to do. Don't get me wrong. I love how the internet as a whole has made being a geek even more fun, but come on. Let's not give this stuff too much credit. And Tom, that's I'm, I'm going to put your email on pause and say that's where I kind of need to disagree with you, at least somewhat. I mean, I think it could take centuries, you know, centuries before we are before we fully understand the way that social networks have changed human communication. You know, it it could very easily take centuries. And then from there, Tom, it could be millennia or several millennia of evolution before we can really integrate social media. Because, Tom, if you think about how long it took for mankind to really become comfortable with the written word, arguably we're still not. Because if you think about, <clears throat> you know, the power that the printed word still has even now to change the entire world, I, you know, you could argue that from an evolutionary st uh, standpoint, Tom, you and I and the rest of the human race, we're still adjusting just to the printed fucking word, all right? When you start integrating things like social networks and the internet and, and all this really high-tech stuff that we have these days, uh, Tom, I don't think anybody's qualified to say how many eons of evolution we might need to completely... Uh, absorb this. Does that make sense? So, yeah, I mean, far from saying that, you know, we shouldn't make, we shouldn't give this stuff too much credit, you know, I, on the one hand, I'm kind of tempted to agree with you. On the other hand, I think we need to study this for 
you know, a couple hundred thousand years, and let's just see what we come up with. You know, as a human race, let's see what we come up with. You know, I don't know. But yes, it is important. But, you know, yeah, and yeah, I can even admit that people do kind of make a little too much out of it. But in terms of the impact that social networks have had and will have on human psychology, human communication, and all these other things, I don't know if we can undersell it, you know? I mean, maybe, but maybe not, you know? And anyway, just something I wanted to throw out there. And by the way, to get back into Tom's email, and by the way, Facebook hasn't been cool for about three or four years now, ever since my parents signed on. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. I mean, you wrote this in uh, 2014, so three or four years ago would have been about 2011 or so. And uh, yeah, that's about the time I can remember Facebook really did change into something else. You know, it was right around then. That's that's when I remember the big change happening. So yeah, you're right about that. Anyway, get back into Tom's email. He finishes up with, Another great show, and I look forward to the next. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Signed, Tom Panarese. And uh, guys, just for those of you who don't know who uh, Tom Panarese is, I probably should have uh, uh, introduced him this way to begin with, but now that I think about it, when I was introducing his email, I was, um, well, uh, needless to say, I was a little, uh, I, I was a kind of upset, <laughs> shall we say. So anyway, uh, but basically, uh, Tom, uh, Tom Panarese, he's the uh, lead blogger for popcultureaffidavit.com, uh, popcultureaffidavit a uh, podcast about everything random in the world of popular culture, and it's a blog as well. You can find both the blog and the uh, podcast at popcultureaffidavit.com. And uh, the about this blog section says, A dear friend once said to me, It's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. As I look back on my life as a dork, I realize that not only, not only have I geeked out, but not in the right way. My taste, you see, isn't great, but instead of hiding from that, I've decided to embrace it. Part commentary, part memoir, this is an exploration of my weird love for the obscure and for those things that sort of stuck. And so, anyway, and that's kind of a little intro into the Pop Culture Affidavit blog. And, you know, guys, I must say that one of the best shows that's going right now, undeniably, is Pop Culture Affidavit as a podcast. And... Sometimes, you know, what you need to do with a podcast is just spend some time with it. You know, sometimes what you need to do is, uh, I don't know what's going on. I'm still trying to get over that Sean Angle email. Um, sometimes what you need to do is just spend some time listening to a couple of episodes and just get a feel for what this podcast is. And I can't speak for anyone else, but that really wasn't true for me with Pop Culture Affidavit. The first episode I ever heard was uh, was uh, Panarese's uh, show about singles, the movie uh, Singles, the Cameron Crowe movie from like, I want to say it's 1992, 1991 or 1992, but I'm pretty sure it's 1992. And literally from the word start, I was on board with Pop Culture Affidavit, the, the concept of it you know, uh, uh, Tom's uh, presentation of the material and all of that, I was pretty much on board with it almost right from from the get-go, you know? 
So didn't need to spend a whole lot of time with it. But the other thing was, you know, as I did spend more time with it, I discovered that, you know, uh, sometimes Tom brings uh, his uh, wife, Amanda, into some episodes. Not every episode, but he's brought her on for uh, a, a, a few episodes. And, you know, I've heard, like, there's this history podcast out there that I used to listen to, and the guy insisted on bringing his wife in. And she knew nothing about this particular subject in history. She knew nothing about it. She cared nothing about it. She had nothing at all to say or to contribute. And basically, <clears throat> the uh, conversation really wasn't much improved by her participation. And Amanda, it's like the total opposite. She comes at things from a kind of different it, well, basically, it's not the exact same perspective as, as Tom. It's, it's similar in some ways, different in others. She has her own point of view on things, and she really does elevate and amplify and contribute. You know, I mean, she really is like a co-conspirator on the show, you know, and she really is contributing something. And, you know, every time somebody says that, you know, hey, yeah, I'm bringing my significant other into this podcast, you know, I always think of this this history podcast that I used to listen to. And I just think, Oh my God, I hope it's not like that. And yeah, at least with uh, Amanda, it never is. So she's super cool. I love her episodes. I also like Tom solo. So to me, it, I mean, it, it really is good either way. So if you've never listened to pop culture affidavit, you know, you're only hurting yourself. You know, you really do need to give it a, give it a shot. And a good example of what I'm talking about here is, um, it was a while back, uh, I think this was one of the Halloween episodes, but uh, basically Tom, uh, he released an episode about the the, uh, the Blair Witch Project, the movie The Blair Witch Project, and uh, Michael Bailey joined in on that, and basically what they had was, honestly, it was, a, it's like everything with Pop Culture Affidavit. It's like equal parts nostalgia, affection, information. And seriously, I can't believe people used to like that stuff. You know, it, it's 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 all of those things. And it's I don't know. I mean, there's this there's a, a social theory that's been making the rounds. And I'm not sure how much I completely agree with it. But basically, it goes that there's a there's a little bit of a transition between uh, Gen X and millennials, you know, and this this transition is called Zennial, Right. And it's basically people who, by age, they could be millennial or they could be Gen X. It really could go either way. But they have a lot of characteristics of the other generation, you know, like the subsequent generation or the previous one. And honestly, a lot of these generational divisions are kind of media inventions to begin with anyway. And so no one really needs to lose. I don't think they really need to lose all that much sleep over well, gee, which generation do I fit into? It's all media bullshit, guys. But at the same time, I do have to acknowledge there is some truth in these labels and stuff that, that come along. And my sense of pop culture affidavit as a show is that it's a very zennial type of uh, podcast. That's not to say that you know people outside of that generation in one direction or the other. It's not to say that they can't enjoy it. But the specific subject matter that tends to get talked about with that show and the angle from which it tends to get analyzed, it's something that I find to be very similar to really my own point of view, you know, because, I mean, my my sense of I've never actually met Tom Panarese, but my sense of him is 
if he and I had known each other in high school, odds are we would have been friends, you know? Like, I like Chris Honeywell as a person. You know, he, I think he's a great guy. But if we had known each other in high school, I can't promise that we would have been friends back then. You know, maybe. But maybe not, you know? Scott Gardner, I'm pretty sure he and I would have been friends back in high school, you know? And definitely, Tom Panarese, I, it's he's just one of those guys that he, like, and maybe it's his voice, I don't know. But he's just got this demeanor about him, you know, that he's already kind of your friend to begin with anyway, even though when I first heard his show, before that, all I'd ever heard were a couple of guest appearances that he'd done on Views from the Long Box, and that was pretty much it, that's all I knew him from. But it's like just to listen to the show, it's like there's this instant history between the two of you that it, it's only in your imagination. It doesn't exist. But it's just like the angle that he talks about stuff to is already so familiar to, at least to me, it's already so familiar to me that, you know, it, it makes connecting to his show that much easier to do. And maybe that's the point. So like I say, you guys, you really need to listen to it. Uh, listen to Pop Culture Affidavit. It's one of my favorite shows that's going right now. In fact... Um, you know, uh, Dinner for Geeks is kind of on a break or something right now, but I mean, I'm pretty much at a point where I would put Dinner for Geeks and Pop Culture Affidavit pretty much on the same level. I mean, like, one is not drastically better than the other, at least in my opinion. So to me, those are, I don't know as I'd go so far as to say those are the two best that are going right now, but they're definitely two of the very best two of them that, that are that are going right now that's for sure so yeah dinner for geeks and pop culture affidavit not that tom panneries has anything to do with dinner for geeks but as far as i know but uh anyway pop culture affidavit for sure definitely you need to be listening to that fuck it you need to be listening to dinner for geeks too so anyway and that i think is pretty much it for email this week and um just want to thank first off all of you for uh taking the time to write in and I also want to thank you listeners for uh, tolerating me struggling through the uh, Sean uh, email. And um, I don't know, that was that hit a lot harder than I thought it was gonna uh, that I than it was gonna hit, guys. So anyway, but thanks all of you for uh, for putting up with it. Thank you for uh, all of you for listening to me. Thank you all of you for uh, writing in. And that I think is pretty much it for me this week. Now, as to next week, uh, what I'm going to be talking about is Hollyweird. Basically, all of these sex scandals and whatnot that have been going on in Hollywood. <sighs> Guys, it's time for me to get together with Chris Honeywell and talk about it. So, at some point, I don't know when, you know, Chris Honeywell and I do want to talk about this whole sovereign citizen cop block thing. But every time we put that on the schedule, something else comes along and kicks it right back off the schedule. So I don't know. But uh, either way, that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Uh, a uh, grope, as it were, of Hollywood sex scandals in the Weird Stuff episode entitled Holly Weird. But that's for next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. 
Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Thank <laughs> you.